He had waited for this moment for upwards of a year, as I recall, or, or thereabouts. And as he gets out of the boat and establishes this place, there's a significance to it. This altar is built, there's sacrifices that are made, and there's a covenant, a relationship in terms that are established. A bow appears in the sky as a covenant sign that God of God promising that He will never flood the earth again. So imagine if you were Noah or his children or his grandchildren, imagine if you witnessed that event, the power that that altar would have. Perhaps you settled on the foot of the mountain, you could see those stones in the distance if you squint your eyes. Every time a rainbow fills the sky, again, your memory would go back to that moment where God Himself solemnly promised to establish this new world in terms of His grace where He would preserve the future lineage against whole-scale destruction. So that altar would be significant, meaningful. Perhaps you would wish you could be there. Another altar that came up in our discussion last night was with Abraham and Isaac. This altar also was significant. Abraham builds the altar. He brings the wood and the fuel up by way of his son's back to the top of the mountain. And then Isaac's eyes widen as it becomes apparent that he himself will be the sacrifice. And as he's lashed to that altar and his father is in anguish just before the knife plunges to the death of his only and beloved son, the Lord says, wait And there is, of course, a ram provided in the bush. And this altar is significant. It's a picture of substitution. One would die in the place of another. It's a picture that pointed forward to the sacrificial lamb, Christ, our Lord, who would die in our stead. It was a promise that God made to Abraham that he fulfilled in that moment, that he would give him a son who would be a great nation, and so on and so forth. So as we think about these altar moments, Elijah on Mount Carmel, or even the altar in the tabernacle or temple, and we're stunned as we think of the memories and the power associated with them, remember in our text that the argument is from the lesser to the greater. As amazing as all those altars were in the Old Testament, the altar that is established, the place, the center, the, uh, uh, where the offering was, grant, uh, was made before the Lord, where the covenant was established, where communion was possible, in Christ on Calvary is so much greater than all those other altars and earns for us access that Abraham, Noah, and the temple Levites and priests could never have dreamed. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Uh, Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 6 for a moment if you would. In Leviticus, the temple order is laid out in... in, uh, painstaking detail, and there are references in our text today, as is often the case in Hebrews, to the Day of Atonement and, of course, the ceremonial law. And here's one reference to the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices that is important to understand the author's point in our text. Notice how in Leviticus 6.30, limitations are prescribed for the Day of Atonement sacrifices. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting. To make atonement in the holy place, it shall be burned up with fire. There is to be no eating, no consuming, no partaking of the offering that was offered on the day of atonement. 
You see, when this animal was slain, the blood was taken, and this was the blood that represented the wrath absorbed for the people's sins. It was a picture of covering and atonement that was taken into the holy place. But the animal from which that blood was taken was then taken outside the city and it was destroyed, burned. But, and it was forbidden that the priests would eat of that sacrifice. Now, many other sacrifices the priests could partake of. They could actually eat certain parts of certain sacrifices. But in this case, they could not eat. So this is a reference that is picked up uh, by our author today, and it's used to illustrate something. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So just like certain sacrifices had prescribed limitations, you could not partake in them in the Old Covenant, so, that, uh, so goes the truth that it is a one particular sacrifice that is full and sufficient and can be partaken of in a way that gives life and that is the ultimate of communion and established relationship between the people and their Lord. And this sacrifice is Jesus Christ alone. So we have special privileges, special privileges, you could say. As we consult the prophetic record, it yields a treasure trove of typology and meaning, of symbolism that is fulfilled in Christ. We have a place of communion. We have an offering that so far surpasses anything shared of old. That one of the pictures is that we can enjoy it in ways that the priests of old and the people under the old covenant could never dream of. Secondly, under correlation, the symbol that we just read of, this slain animal in Leviticus 6.30, is fulfilled in the work of Christ. Notice verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then it goes on, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. The Day of Atonement regulations involved, as we have read, the burning of the carcasses. When the carcasses were taken outside the city, it's a picture of banishment, removal, removed from the presence and from the fellowship of the people were the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, and then they were disposed of outside of their midst. This is significant. This idea of removing this sacrifice from the presence of the people carried with it the idea of propitiation. When the sacrifice was destroyed, it was a picture of the judgment of God destroying that which bore the sin. So His justice could be upheld in the destruction of the substitute and even as the people would go free. In the removal of the sacrifice from the presence of the people to the outskirts, we also have the, pic the picture of expiation or the removal of our sins. In the, uh, the, lit the liturgy and the ritual and the Day of Atonement, the priest would lay his hands on the animal and it was to symbolically represent the transfer of the sins onto this animal. One of the animals was sacrificed and the other was sent into the wilderness. Again, the picture of removal of the sin from the people, even as far as the east is from the west. And finally, this image of burning. 
the fire is used as a picture of purification. So that which is unsanctified and unsanitary, that which is unclean, is destroyed or purified in the burning of fire. So these were the significance of the rites and rituals that were involved in the Day of Atonement sacrifices. And this is what the author of Hebrews refers to when he says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice are burned outside the camp. Let us discover by reaching back a few uh, pages in Hebrews the corresponding <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> truth or the reality that correlates with the Day of Atonement sacrifices. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, just by way of reminder, consider verse 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So you see the insufficiency of the Day of Atonement sacrifices under the Old Covenant, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Verse 3, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In spite of all those thousands, perhaps millions of animals that were killed under the Old Covenant, it was impossible by the death of those animals for sins to be expiated, for sins to be taken away. However, when Christ died, whole different story. And our author goes on to proclaim as much in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, to reference to Psalm 40, uh, uh, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I come to do your will. That's the first person of the Messiah. The Messiah speaking in the first person. He abolishes the first order to establish the second. So this is the altar, the new altar that we're reading of here. This is the altar that those under the old order could not approach. But that old altar is abolished. That old order is abolished. And he's establishing a second. Verse 10, he continues, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus Christ was removed outside of Jerusalem, beyond the city gates, and was crucified on Calvary, just like what was represented in the destruction of the sacrifice outside the city, so when Christ was removed from the people and He was sacrificed on the cross, this was a work of ultimate, complete, satisfactory atonement and sanctification. This was powerful. Verse 11, and every high priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise the Lord. This is what the author has in mind. The special privileges, the symbols fulfilled in Christ. 
in Leviticus. Again, I know I'm skipping around, but there's so many references that are in the back of, or in the context of the, these passages today. In Leviticus 16, 27, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read to you a little the background that relates to our text, the corresponding truths from the Old Testament. And the, old bull, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with the fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, do no work, either you, your native, or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins." And that was the symbolic uh, that was the symbolic equivalent of what Christ fulfilled on this day on Calvary that the author of Hebrews points to when Christ went outside the city when he was sacrificed there he became in in the destruction of his flesh the sanctification of his people he was the one who took on their the a calling of their atonement as he bore their sin in himself and was crucified on Calvary. This was the day of atonement for us. This was the day of atonement looked forward to, the forever fulfillment of these words in Leviticus. And it cleanses us from all sins. And so we are clean before the Lord because Christ went outside the city. Let's consider the consequences of this. The consequences of the special privileges and that we have in the new covenant and these symbols fulfilled in Christ are amazing indeed. You may have missed it, but let me point you back to the first word of our text today, we. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Do you see how we correspond to the priests of old? Whereas the priests serve the tent of old, we now come to the altar of God as a kingdom of priests, as it were. The priesthood of all believers the fact that God now does not have a special class that intercedes for the rest of us, but one man who intercedes for all who are in him, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called forth by him and set apart for him. And so this is the altar experience in the communion that we enjoy that the old order could never promise or deliver. This is the altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, but we partake in as we follow Christ. Hallelujah. On your own time, Hebrews 9, 18-26 tells us the role of blood in the setting apart, the making holy, and the cleansing of the temple order of old. And so it is that Christ's own blood must be shed and was shed for the propitiation of our sins. Our privileges today are breathtaking indeed. Consider the Lord's table. Before us, we have represented His torn body, His broken body, and His spilled blood. In communion, we have a picture of partaking in the sacrifice of Christ, do we not? There is, in this ordinance, before us, an altar experience. We come forward remembering the moment when Christ died, and as we take in the bread and juice, we recall His work for us. 
We are actually coming to the altar in this meal today in symbolic form, even as we have substantively for all who are in Christ today. Something to remember this morning. Secondly, major point, consecration. The significance of Calvary and its location plays into uh, Christ's work of cleansing and making things holy, building on what we've said, a few more points uh, to add, a few more contours that come forward in our text. Hebrews 9, 18, as I mentioned to you, uh, dictates to us, it proclaims to us the role of blood in setting things apart and making them holy and sacred. In verse 12 of our text today, it says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the location of Calvary, the significance of where the cross was situated, was important for the sanctification of his people. Christ went outside, he suffered outside the gate in order to make us holy, to consecrate us, to set us apart. And he did so through the instrument of his own blood. Consider John 19, when these moments were recorded as the Apostle gives to us the events and his record of that glorious day. In John chapter 19, verse 17, we read a few of the details to which our author refers. It says, And they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others on either side, and Jesus between them. As John records these events, we see a few details. He went out to a place, or, uh, to a place called the place of the skull. So this idea of going out indicates a direction away from Jerusalem to the place of his crucifixion. And this was important in Scripture. They went out to this place. It says a detail in the text, verse 18, or verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The place where he was crucified was near the city, and that inscription was written in Aramaic, Latin, and the Greek. So here we have, even in the record of John, and in the rest of the Gospels, a record of every detail necessary and significant to the work of Christ. He suffered outside the gate. The location of the cross is noted in the text. This was a place a little way from the city, a place, if you were to, to travel there, you would have to go out uh, in, in order to arrive at, the, at this hill, this place of the skull. And it was here that the necessary blood was shed. We read of this necessary instrument of the people's sanctification again in Hebrews 13, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. But we also read of it in the rest of his book. And as we recall some of these texts, perhaps Hebrews 10, 11 comes to mind. Every priest, as we read before, every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. But when Christ had offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Actually, the reference I was looking for goes beyond this to uh, speak of his blood. As we continue to read, however, some of these same ideas are in view. This is the covenant that I will make with them, says the Lord, verse 16. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In chapter 9, we have the necessary element of blood featured. And in the same way, verse 21, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. So the use of blood as a purifying agent under the old covenant order. Verse 22, indeed the blood, almost every, or indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It goes on to indicate to us that for these reasons, it is absolutely necessary that the blood of the high priest and sacrifice be shed for our sins. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, speaking of Christ in verse 25, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, speaking of Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so here we have in the greater uh, work in the book of Hebrews, the emphasis of the sanctification of the people that hinged upon the shedding of blood that had to take place just uh, in, in the exact location to fulfill all of the terms and conditions. And so for this reason, Christ was sacrificed. Christ was killed outside the camp. And now there is a shift in the text. Let us notice verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Let us go, therefore, outside the camp ourselves and bear the reproach that he endured. This consecration, this location, the significance of Calvary and where Christ was crucified speaks to the sanctification of the people, but it's also a signal for us to follow him outside the camp. In Mark 15, 16 through 21, we won't turn there this morning, but you'll recall that Jesus Christ was beaten. He was mocked and he was scorned. They put a, a, a fake, a royal robe on him, as it were, and a crown of thorns and a, something to represent a scepter in his hand. And they hailed him as a king as they treated him uh, with the greatest dishonor you could possibly imagine. And then they sent him away from the city to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. And the journey was long enough that Christ in his dilapidated, his weakened condition, could not bear the weight of his own instrument of execution. So Simon of Cyrene was commandeered and he carried the cross the rest of the way. And in this is a picture of the shame that is associated with going outside the city. This is recalled in our text today. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Think of how Simon felt, carrying, perhaps not knowing, if the Spirit had not awakened his heart to the reality of these conditions. All of a sudden, he is conscripted to carry the instrument of execution and capital punishment for 
as far as he knows, a wicked criminal. And people are going to think, well, I wonder what he did. I wonder if he's a rapist or a murderer, a serial killer. And he's bearing that cross. And if he didn't realize the significance of the moment, he would certainly realize the shame. Christ himself had been beaten and bruised so much so that he can barely carry his own weight to the place of sacrifice. And all of the public class and the ruling class and the people had turned against him in that moment. So to identify with Christ in those moments was to embrace his shame. It was to be ridiculed by the mob. It was to be rejected by the authorities. It was perhaps to be persecuted by the religious leaders. It was to be gossiped about and scorned by your neighbors. That's what it meant to follow Christ outside the camp, like the women who were so faithful, the Marys, as we called them, when we were preaching through Matthew, that followed him, weeping and crying out and uh, trying to attend to his needs and followed him all the way to his grave with spices to anoint the body. Those women who were faithful and dedicated to follow their Savior were willing to do so, to go outside the camp to bear the shame and the reproach of their neighbors. Why? Because they knew the significance of Christ and his death and they loved their Savior, Messiah. And they would not abandon him at this moment when he was fulfilling the very conditions for the salvation of their own soul. And we need to hear this message because we are called to follow Christ. As we read in the introduction, to take up our cross and to follow him, to be willing to lose our life that we might gain it. And there is mockery and derision and marginalization and persecution today, just as there was then. Yet Christ, when He was crucified outside the city, gave us a signal, a beckon call. Follow me. Even if following me outside the city is associated with this kind of price and these kinds of sufferings, the reward is worth it. And so in our text today, the metaphor is extended. The emphasis goes further than just the sacrifice that was necessary outside the city as a picture of the removal of sins and the purification of the people and the satisfaction of the wrath of God and so on. It's also a picture of our calling to be willing to follow Christ even to the hill of Calvary. If faithfulness to Him means laying down our lives, may the answer be yes because He went outside the camp for us, and as we realize the meaningful weight and power and value of that moment, it gives us grace and strength to bear the reproach that he endured. In Hebrews 13, 1 through 5, we have some examples of what following Christ outside the camp might look like. What does that mean, you could ask, to go with Christ outside the camp? Well, these examples at the beginning of this chapter are very practical. They're very Simple, although they might be difficult to follow through on. Here they are, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. You can follow Christ outside the camp as you love one another. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as those who, as, uh, as uh, though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. In the context here, it was being willing to be associated with those who had, were in trouble with the law and were outcasts from the culture. 
Be willing to be associated with them, even if you're implicated in their, uh, in their uh, crimes, but just by visiting them in prison as far as the authorities are concerned. But it's a practical way. Standing with our brothers and sisters as they suffer for their faith is a practical way to follow Christ outside the city. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He goes on, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Think about even these uh, admonitions here. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. If you ha- hold a marriage in honor today, in our society today, that comes with a price. If you insist that marriage must be held in honor by all, that is, marriage as God has ordained and exclusively and inalterably defined it in Scripture, it's not up for debate, it's not up for redefinition, it's not up for the Supreme Court to say this group can now be married or these people can now be married. It's not up for revision in any way. Marriage is to be held in honor by all, regardless of your, uh, your ostensible sexual orientation, for instance. Well, standing on the Word of God as to the honor of marriage is a good example in our culture today of following Christ outside the camp. Why? Because you will be accused of hate speech, you will be called a bigot, and you will be pressured to conform by all the media influences, perhaps the opinion of your friends and neighbors and family. But God does not change just because our society would prefer something different now. Do you remember what our text also says? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, verse 8. So as the winds of culture change, and as certain things grow and wane in popularity, and as persecution ebbs and flows, it is imperative for us to remember that the Word of Christ is a stable line, rock-solid, unchanging foundation of truth. And we are to follow Christ outside the city, even if it means persecution, derision, being called haters, being called discriminators, whatever else, whatever other label the world might give us. Let us be willing to endure that cost because Christ has paid such a high price for us. This is indeed our reasonable worship, as Romans declares. Finally this morning, as we have received the Word of God by these truths, let us consider how valuable they indeed are by way of evaluation. Notice, first of all, that there is a shift in fortunes. We see in verse 14, for all who are in Christ. We had one treasure before, we have a new treasure now. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's our true treasure. The Lord, what He has done, everything associated with His rule, His reign, His kingdom, and His righteousness, obedience and following Him, this is what we ought to seek and value now. As Matthew declares Christ Himself in the Sermon on the Mount, The way our author proclaims these things by way of glorious metaphors in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There is a shift in fortunes. Our investments are no longer in the cities of man. The places that will corrupt and decay where thieves break in and steal. 
moth and rust destroy. But our, we look to a city whose builder and maker is God. We seek a city that is to come. Notice how the uh, fortunes of Abraham shifted when he came to faith. In Hebrews 11 verse 8, By faith, it says, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place. Notice that language is a similar admonition to our text today. Go out to a place. Go out from the city that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And notice verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There was a shift in fortunes for Abraham. He left the city of pagan promises in the place of his wicked forefathers, the place of security, assurance, and worldly wealth, and neighbors and friendships that this life the unbeliever can boast. And he set his face towards a wilderness land, a place uncivilized, uninhabited, living his whole life in temporary structures, a tent. You see that language of tent also recalling the tabernacle of old, a temporary structure, a place of dwelling, looking forward to the ultimate place of dwelling. But we are in many ways just passing through as we uh, think of our lives in these terms. That which the world promises is not what we should, where we should invest our fortunes. Paul even speaks of his own body as a tent in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. He talks about it wearing thin, but he also talks about a shift that will soon take place when that which is temporary and wearing out will give way to a building whose designer, like Abraham says, is God. And it's secure and assured for him in glory. And so this, these are the ideas that we should realize and the value and, and indicates where our value should be placed. And thinking seriously about these promises gives us grace to endure even some of the hardships that we've described in this message. We should be grateful for receiving that kingdom that cannot be shaken. We should be grateful and awestruck and amazed and serve the Lord with reverence and fear and acceptable worship as we consider our citizenship in that city that is to come. The unfolding plan of God in His rule and reign as He establishes His kingdom on this earth and defeats His enemies through the course of redemptive history unto the consummation of all things. In light of this, our author calls us, calls the church to sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of deeds. Verse 15, Through Him then, so you could say in light of this, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He uses the language of sacrifice to describe what I would say is acceptable worship. Remember verse 28, he has referenced this. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Examples of that acceptable worship are upon being amazed and having our minds reoriented according to the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done for us and the value of what He's purchased, even the city that is to come and a kingdom that's unshaken. Let us then offer up our praises to the Lord. The fruit of lips that acknowledge His name 
is spoken of as a sacrifice of praise. This is a different kind of sacrifice. It's a way to worship the Lord. This isn't a sacrifice that covers sin. This is a sacrifice that expresses our love and appreciation in light of our sin being covered. This is what we do on Sunday mornings when we lift up our songs of praise to the Lord. When we sit and listen to His Word and are moved by the truth and the power of its message. This is what we do when we confess our faith to one another and when we profess as much as we testify to the unbeliever. All this is fruit of our lips. Think of the different ways that we can offer the sacrifice of praise. We can memorize Scripture. We can confess the truth of God. We can testify to unbelievers. We can worship the Lord in song. We can uh, proclaim the Scriptures, read them, memorize them, write them upon the tables of our hearts. But these are suitable, and these are suitable ways for us to worship God in light of what He's done. And then the final sacrifice referred to is that of works or deeds. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And again, our works as a sacrifice are not, the, are, are not something that we do to cover our sin. Instead, our works are something we do because our sin is covered. So good works that we do is an expression of overflowing, again, gratefulness, reverence, and awe for what Christ has done, suffering for us outside the city. And therefore, as we seek to be obedient, these are examples of ways to worship Him, and our works become a pleasing sacrifice to Him. And again, for examples of what those are, point you back to the beginning of the chapter. Brotherly love, hospitality, holding marriage honorable, keeping your life free from these kinds of sins, not loving money, but loving the Lord and following Him, visiting the prisoner, standing in solidarity with those who suffered for their faith, and not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when it costs us a high price. These are the admonitions that we are reminded of today towards the end of Hebrews. We're coming to the close of this book. Man, it is theologically rich. It is glorious indeed. I'd encourage you this morning to think about these truths that we've covered today as we partake in the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves again that we have an altar where we can partake in the sacrifice of Christ our Lord, that those who served the tent of old could, could never dream of under the old order. They, of course, could in faith of the future Messiah, but until He came, that access was not available. But now that Christ has come, as Hebrews says, through His torn blood, we have access personally into the Holy of Holies. The place that was typologically represented of old, symbolized in the holy place in the tabernacle and temple that was accessible only by one person, the high priest. But now Christ, our high priest, secured entrance for all who partake in Him, for all who appreciate His sacrifice for us. All these things are represented in this meal today. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we're thankful for the power of Scripture. We're thankful for the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ our Lord. We're thankful for the revelation of these truths written down in your Holy Scriptures. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit's use of these means to inscribe them upon our heart. And we're thankful for this meal today for your table, which symbolizes the power, Lord, of the gospel 
real and tangible, partaken of among all who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, write these things deeply upon our souls and our hearts today as we seek to be obedient to you through the sacrifice of fruit of lips that brings glory to your name and through works inspired by this message, we pray, that would be as, uh, pleasing unto your name. We thank you, God, for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.